Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today, I'll be talking to Elisa de Ranieri, who is editor-in-chief of Nature Communications. Nature Research covers vast scholarly ground with their publications. They have their flagship journal, Nature, and they have their series Nature Reviews and Nature Partner Journals, online-only venues for such highly specialized topics as photonics and microgravity. Nature Research have their mega-journal in open-access publishing scientific reports. Nature Research has so many venues, I can't even mention them all here. But one high-profile venue among those, and the topic for today's interview, Nature Research have Nature Communications, a journal which is a brand in its own right, being the flagship itself of communications biology, communications chemistry, communications physics, and communications materials. Here readers find themselves on specialist ground. Nature Communications publishes research in the biological, health, physical, chemical, and earth sciences, and it is in these fields that articles in the journal make advances of significance. Editorial services are thorough, but also swift and efficient, because Nature Communications lays value on the prompt dissemination of accepted papers. That excellent work is achieved by 16 editorial teams, 100-plus full-time editors, and those teams of editors work under the leadership of Elisa de Ranieri, editor-in-chief of Nature Communications. Elisa de Ranieri has run Nature Communications for the past year, giving the journal its current strategy and editorial selection and process, as well as its outlook for the ever-changing sphere of scientific publishing. Elisa de Ranieri took her PhD in electronics and physics at Cambridge University, and she stayed on in Cambridge to work as a postdoctoral researcher in the Hitachi Cambridge Laboratory before she entered publishing. In 2012, she became an editor at Nature Communications itself, and then performed multiple editorial roles at Nature Research, including Head of Editorial Process and Data Analytics. Alisa de Ranieri, scientist and publisher, is my guest today on Scholarly Communication. Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network, is the podcast about how knowledge gets known. We talk to educators and to editors, to writing academics and to reading academics, to those identifying with scholarship, and to those identifying with communication, and of course, to those identifying with both, because scholarly communication aims to be the plus sign between. Scholarly scholarly communication is about scholarship, about the research, the work, and the instruction in writing. And scholarly communication is about communication, about the selection, the production, and the dissemination of knowledge. Wherever writing and knowledge connect, There, the communication of scholarship is taking place, and there, too, we at Scholarly Communication have our place. So let's begin today's episode. Elisa de Ranieri and Nature Communications. Elisa, welcome to Scholarly Communication. 
Uh, thank you very much, Daniel. I'm really pleased to be able to contribute to your series and, and thank you very much for, for having me here today. Great. Um, I, our listeners generally like to find out about um, the people that we invite here to our interviews. So I would like to begin on a biographical note. Uh, you, Elisa, uh, as I mentioned, have a PhD in the sciences and now are a very important editor in uh, scholarly communication. Uh, could you tell us how that came about? <laughs> what in your life brought you to the position you're in now? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I would say a little bit of chance <laughs> it was involved uh, when uh, particularly at the point where I transitioned from uh, out of academia. And I guess like uh, many people, I, I went through a series of you know frustrations uh, during my uh, PhD and postdoc career when you know doing research is, is not uh, is not easy. It's wonderful. Uh, I loved it, but it's also not easy. And at some point, you realize that the field is really competitive. And uh, you know, it, basically, I gave myself uh, one or two years of postdoc research to see whether I could you know go down the the typical uh, tenure track. Um, career and when like the signs weren't to write for that and I was really kind of unhappy in my work-life balance and all sorts of things that's where I kind of transitioned um, almost by chance to one editorial career so it was never really something that I had planned or I didn't even know these roles existed uh, during my PhD Uh, so that transition came by chance and um, I'm saying that because I think Others out there that are thinking of transitioning out of academia might not know that this is a career path which can be uh, very, very um, rewarding. But then, so basically, when uh, when I joined um, the the company at the time was called Milan Publishers. We uh, later merged with Springer to what is now Springer Nature. Uh, so when I joined the company, as as you said, I I was one of the many editors um, at Nature Communications. Although at the time the journal was lot smaller. It was only eight of us. And now, as you said, we have more than 100. Um, and then from then, I moved to other to other journals within the Nature family. Um, as you mentioned, we publish a, a very large number of journals. About 50 of those are Nature branded. Uh, so I, I did a stint in Nature Nanotechnology and then Nature Energy. And I moved to those positions because um, each of those was offering me something a little bit different in terms of the skills that I was acquiring within the editorial kind of tools, uh, skill skill set. Um, and then from then, um, I moved to uh, another role, the one you mentioned, uh, the head of um, data analytics that was not related to the content. It was more to do with monitoring the performance of all of the nature titles and making sure that they, uh, you know, that they perform as well as they can in terms of water service and, and things like that. Um, and that really gave me a much broader skill set going beyond uh, purely editorial content, but giving me a little bit of um, you know an understanding of how to manage people, how to manage projects. And that, I guess, was one of the main reasons why um, I was successful in, in getting my current job, because I had skills that your typical... Uh, you know, chief editor wouldn't get uh, through their career. So so that's how I ended up here, a mix of chance. Uh, and I would say beyond the chance, there was there's, there was and there still is a lot of kind of passion for science and science communication. Obviously, without that, I wouldn't be in any of the roles I've been in the past uh, nine years. 
Um, so yeah, that, that I think that's how I got there in, in a nutshell. Yeah. Okay. Lots of interesting things there. What what really attracts my attention are the skill sets that you talk about, as you emphasize this uh, stint that you did during the editorial process and data analytics, which actually is a bit of a step outside the normal editorial role, gave you, you felt, an advantage coming back in as then a managing editor. Could you uh, perhaps tell us a bit more about that? What what were some of the more specific sides to that role that gave you a, the edge, if you like? Yeah, so that was a very kind of ad hoc role, which doesn't even exist anymore in uh, in our current structure, because as I said, it was a mix of data analytics on the performance of the journal. And therefore, you know, I was working with a small team of data analysts and we were trying to get data out of uh, our manuscript uh, tracking system to make sure that journals are on top of their turnaround times and their metrics for, you know, how much do they send to review, how much do they accept so that people can monitor these metrics. But then I would say half of the job was also to do with uh, kind of contributing or, or leading initiatives in, in peer review and, and peer review policies. Uh, so there was kind of more, um, you know, less, uh, uh, less numbery <laughs> type of uh, uh, tasks in, in, the, um, in the role, which was really you know, maybe the more attractive side to me because that's where we got to explore, um, you know, should we introduce a new type of peer review? What are the what are the attitudes of the community towards this certain type of peer review model? So all of those questions, finally, I could contribute to, to answering. And also that's where I got to kind of branch branch out my, my network of colleagues within, within the company and learning from different, you know, people with different, expertise it's always you know very very interesting and very useful and as you mentioned uh, there were a number of years at different editorial roles so more inside of the traditional area where you would expect to, to find an editor. And you said that uh, moving through uh, the Nature Research Company in that way certainly gave you new views and added to your skill sets. Uh, would Could there be perhaps one experience or one particular skill that you could point to as, say, uh, that would be exemplary in that case? Yeah, I guess there's a, there's a couple. I think the the main the, the when I did the move from Nature Communications to Nature Nanotech, the main reason was that at the time Nature Communications was uh, kind of hundred percent focused on on publishing primary research, and they wouldn't really do things like review articles or perspectives or comments. And I was really interested in that type of content because then you, if, you know, if you can publish that type of content, it means you learn how to commission an article, you, need, you learn how to edit it, you, you know, perhaps hone your writing skills by writing research highlights and, and the likes. So these are all different types of content which weren't really available for editors and initial communications at the time uh, and were available elsewhere. And that's that's one of the reasons why why I left the journal back then. Uh, I should clarify that now we and we initial communications also offer that type of content to, to our own editors and authors, so people don't have to leave anymore for that. Um, but yeah, that, that that's one um, very specific skill set, which is to do with commission content and, and editorially uh, produced content. Yes, that sounds very much more like uh, the editor, this uh, commission content, uh, these different comments. And as you say, to hone your writing skills, 
one thing uh, that I can imagine, uh, because I do want to talk a bit more about editors, but I might push it slightly later into the uh, interview. But one thing that uh, is quite typical about your uh, biography and getting into editing is this idea that, of course, you began in the sciences and in the uh, primary research area, as so many other editors have, and then you moved over into into publishing. And that somewhere along the line, though, there's an interest in writing, isn't there? There's an interest in communication. There's this interest in getting it out there and letting it be known in the best possible form. Does that ring true for you as well? Yeah, I would say it goes beyond just the writing because typically the job of the editor is to edit, right? So it's it's really to to improve and make more accessible content that has been written by someone else. Most you know, most likely a researcher that has submitted their work to us, right? So in that sense, um, I think there's a bit of this uh, kind of overemphasis on on writing, but actually what editors do is mostly reading and, and editing, right? Uh, and try to help authors to make their work more understandable by others and more impactful by um, you know, shaping the message in a way that sometimes authors can't do themselves because when you are uh, too close to your work, uh, and also you will have, you know, you you have an agenda, right? You 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 want to push for your work. Uh, you have a very uh, kind of skewed vision of of research in the sense that you are really attached to your area of research and perhaps don't have a broad view of. Um, areas that might be equally impacted by your work. So that's where we help as editors to um, help, you know, basically helping authors to broaden up the message, making it more accessible, uh, you know, writing sort of the the work with more narrative tools that, that will take the readers with them as opposed to, uh, you know, producing a very factual and dry account, which is, as you know, as equally accurate, but doesn't really doesn't capture the audience you know writing a paper is or 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 rather a paper a scientific paper is like any other artifact of of humankind right you need to entice um entice your your audience to read through you need to tell them why they should spend their time reading your paper as opposed to doing anything else so so there is that component of curation of messaging um of um, accessibility uh, that that's the component that the editor can help with. It's not necessarily the writing of original content per se, if that makes sense. I don't know if I've answered your question. Uh, no, it makes a lot of sense. And it's really fascinating because it speaks to a lot of the things uh, that uh, me as a writing researcher have encountered in, in slightly different vocabulary, but it's the exact same thing. The idea that uh, if you're writing research, you need to be able to situate it correctly and it's context, which would be um, what you were saying in the sense of give it the right narrative so that it reaches the audience who would be interested in it. I mean, it's really saying with different words the exact same thing. So it's uh, you're giving more or less evidence for what writing researchers uh, generally are trying to tell people who are in research and trying to get it out there to uh, the scientific community. I find it interesting that you say this overemphasis on writing, because when you then say the editor's job is to make sure that um, the message is packaged correctly and reaches the correct people. It's in a sense a rewriting, isn't it? That you would say uh, you're doing. Could you could you agree with that, or am I going too far? 
No, no, I think we, we are saying the same thing. So I was meaning writing more as in writing original content. And when I speak about editing, I mean basically rewriting content written by someone else. So I think we are saying the exact same thing that it's, uh, you know, editors will write things of their own, such as editorials, or as I was saying, maybe a research highlight that is content that they write themselves. But the rest of the stuff that they do is um, editing uh, that is rewriting content written by others to, to um, you know, hone the, the message and, and shape it in, in a better way. So so that, that's exactly what I was saying. And when I say it over emphasis, uh, I was uh, laughing a little bit because that's one of the things uh, that comes up when we interview prospective new editors. We always ask, you know, why are you interested in the job and why do you want to become an editor? And 90% of, of them will say, because I like writing. And this is where we tell them, well, it's not really about writing. It's about reading and, and rewriting. So um, I think there's a, they always say this because there's a bit of a misconception on what the editor actually does in the context of a scientific publication like ours that's wonderful <laughs> that it's about as you say it's about re- reading and, and rewriting there um i've talked to many people in uh, publishing houses and a few people in journals and what i often get is feedback and it sounds very much like what you're saying as well is that there's a lot going on at a journal or at a publishing house I mean, as an editor you're reading a lot you're in touch with many different communities you're on the cutting edges of different areas of science or whatever it is that the area of research happens to be that the publisher is interested in this would seem to position editors in a fantastic place to be able to make those sorts of decisions of context that you were just talking about the wide reading the broad context uh, the, the broad contacts, excuse me, and also the ability to rewrite so that that gets communicated. And do you think I'm giving a fair picture of uh, the way it might work also at Nature Communications? Yeah, I think you've nailed it. Uh, that's exactly what the what the job is. The job is is uh, because of the nature of it and the fact that you you read constantly. And when I said uh, reading, it's a lot of reading because our people will uh, process. I don't know, four or 500 manuscripts every year. And that's just the manuscripts that they receive as submissions. But for each one manuscript you're assessing, you might read another two or three in the literature to, to familiarize yourself with the topic. So these people read all the time. <laughs> they read, you know, six, seven hours a day. They spend reading and learning about new things. And that gives you a very broad overview of science that you can't really have if you are a professional scientist because you don't have the time. You know, if you are a postdoc or, or a PhD student or even a PI, um, you know, your area of work is, is quite well defined and your knowledge will run very deep in that area. But it, especially for, for PhD students and, and postdoc, it also runs very, very uh, narrow. While an editor over time develops a very um, kind of uh, shallow knowledge, if you like, but very broad over many, many areas. And once you've learned the skills of how to kind of quickly um, extract the key information from a text and assessing whether that information is sufficiently interesting for your audience and therefore deciding whether you send the paper to review or not. Once you've learned how to do that, you can apply to any area. So in, in so my background, as, as you were saying, is in is a solid state physics. Um, and when I uh, was in initial communications and then initial nanotech, I was applying uh, knowledge that I directly 
had more or less from my um, from my research years. But then when I moved to Nature Energy, for example, um, I then handled papers that were on like wind turbines and how you design a wind turbine. And I had no idea about it, obviously. But but you you just need to apply the same skill set. You need, of course, to learn a lot about the new topic until you understand uh, the key concepts and and who to engage as a reviewer and stuff like that. But it is it is the same process, right? So. Um, it is the broad skill set that editors will acquire after many years working working in the job. And, and which, as you were saying, another thing you were saying, I think it's worth emphasizing is that you do the difference between um, being an editor and being a researcher is also that you, as an editor, you will see the cutting edge six to 12 months before anyone else. So it really gives you not just a broad overview, but you basically see in the future a bit because you know what's what's bubbling um, out there. And of course, these days with preprints, um, that uh, future, the ability to look in the future, it, it's shared by more people because you know whoever can access a preprint will know what's coming up in, in the next few months. But uh, still, it is that kind of broad knowledge of the field and the implications not just for that field but for adjacent uh, adjacent fields that characterize the you know a good editor so to speak yeah yeah and there's there's been another metaphor that's often used in uh, to, to describe exactly what you're talking about this idea of uh being just slightly ahead of what's uh, known, knowing what's coming and knowing exactly what we've just covered and so on. And the metaphor is as a conversation. People take uh, the different uh, sub-disciplines of the sciences and they say that they're all small communities that are in talk with each other. And it would seem to me that the editor or even the very well-read scientist, if they can make time for themselves, and you've made a very good point of your primary research, that time can be hard to find, but that the editor, at least, is certainly dipping in to the conversations and knows how to tactfully get involved, knows what to say to whom and how to situate it just right. Yeah, If you imagine a real conversation, to be good at it, it's not always easy. It's easy to say things that just don't hit, right? <laughs> um, th- is this is this a picture that can also resonate with you? Yeah, definitely. I think there's two two things to say about this. The first, as you said, that the editor, if you know, if it's a good editor, and as the skills that we've described, they will know how to pitch things to different audiences, right? So they can help uh, because they know what resonates with one community compared to another, or maybe a set of stakeholders compared to another. You know, I'm talking you know, authors, funders, reviewers. We interact with these different personas um, in different ways, and, and we know how to do that perhaps more than a researcher would know. But also, secondly, I think going beyond that, again, that the mark of a good editor is also not just to talk to these different communities uh, in the appropriate way, but to make them talk to each other. That is really where you make the, the difference. So, for example, if it's a, if, if you can link uh, an advance in one field and bring it to the attention of another field that perhaps the researchers that did the work didn't even think about it, right? But you as an editor can make that connection because you have that much broader view of, of science in your areas. That's where you actually can impact how people do research. And that's that, I think, is, is where we can kind of be more active, so to speak, in uh, contributing to, to science. Because obviously, for primary research, what, what you do is relatively passive in the sense that 
we have to wait for submissions to come in. We assess them, of course, and we and we select them, but they still have to come in in the first place, right? So it's, if you like, it's a bit of a reactive um, uh, activity. But when we commission, that's where we can do, we can bridge this, uh, these gaps between communities. We can more actively bring uh, to the attention of one community a result, a result done by another community. So that I think it, it's really when, uh, when the editor adds the most value. I find that fascinating. I um, have spoken also with uh, Helen Pearson, who's at uh, the Nature magazine itself, and she's there for the uh, news and uh, opinion and commentary content. Her audience is certainly very broad, would reach perhaps even people who are not in primary research. But what you're saying just to understand sort of the position of nature communications better. What you're saying is that sort of work is also happening if the editor is doing their job right on the level of specialists and between specialist communities. Is that yeah, correct? Exactly. Because, um, you know, I don't have a concrete example now, but, you know, imagine our journal obviously is very multidisciplinary. We publish anything in the natural and social sciences. So, People that read us, they they can really make connections between specialist disciplines, and this is what we might do. For example, in the context of research that might be relevant to sustainable sustainable development goals, right? Because somebody working on I, I mean, as I said, I don't have a specific example. I'm making stuff up, but you know, let's imagine I don't know water filters, right? They might going down the rabbit hole of that very narrow problem they're trying to solve in that technology for the purposes of a certain application. But then they might not know that that technology applied in a different context might solve a problem in a totally different um, setting. And and because they don't know, because they don't have the broader vision and it's not of their fault, it's just they don't have time for that. (laughs) But you as the editor, because you know of the issues that can be solved by the technology these people have produced, you can put the two together and, uh, and spark activity. You can even spark research activity that can tackle these this, uh, development goals. So that, that's what I was talking about, is really trying to get the communities to talk to each other and to be aware of um, uh, advances in each other's fields. This, this brings up a very fascinating topic. It's one of those, say, chicken and egg kind of problems is the research on the one end and the communication of the research on the other. And you'll often get the impression and even sometimes the direct statement when you're speaking with primary researchers that it's the research that matters. But clearly, if we step back, uh, as you were saying, with the passive role, um, if that research doesn't get to anyone besides that one particular lab group, it's really hard to say how good it is or what what it's worth, right? And what you're talking about right now, about even taking it further and spreading it and making the research do even more work and engendering more research, this makes it even harder to answer the question of, yeah, the research and the communication, which came first, right? Well, I, I have a pretty strong view on that. <laughs> so, well, please, I like yeah. strong views. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, if there wasn't the good piece of research being done, nothing else would come out of it, obviously, right? But but my uh, w- what we tell um, researchers when we go and do lab visits or, you know, at conferences when we, we usually give talks um, helping people to understand how the publishing works so that they can um, have a better chance to produce a manuscript of of a better quality already at the first submission stage. So so we, we say this to everybody, you know, if 
the, the message is of course important, but if you don't um, make people interested in that message, what what have you achieved? I mean, what's the impact of of a piece of work that is there but no one will ever read? Absolutely zero, right? That is, if you have, if you hadn't done that piece of work, the world would be the same <laughs> because no one has read it, no one has, uh, no one has picked up on it, and so it, it's it's really important that a science, scientists and researchers understand that their duty is not just to produce good quality research. Their duty is to communicate that research to the public. And and that's why we are perhaps now in, in a bit of an era where scientists are mistrusted by the public. They, the public doesn't really understand the importance of science. You know, uh, we, we, we went through the era of, uh, you know, too many... Too many experts. We don't need experts anymore. This is this is really damaging, right, uh, for, for all of us. So I think it's really important that people understand that it doesn't matter how good your research is if no one wants to read it and no one wants to uh, learn from it. It's like it's just it's just pointless. You could have you you might as well not have done it and and nothing would have changed. So and that's why it's so important that when people uh, sit down and write the research or maybe prepare a poster or whatever other ways they have to, to communicate that research that they think, you know, who is my audience? What, what do I want them to learn from, from this? Um, what is my message? And then you, you take it from there, as I was saying, you, using a narrative that will make people read on because um, dry facts are not appealing to anyone. We are human creatures like, uh, you know, pathos, and they like to know, they like to have a story, they like to have uh, main characters and villains. They, they, they need that to follow you in the story. If you just write an accurate account of your data, that, does, that is not of help to anyone. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Uh, in fact, I'm thinking of... Uh, and you'll have <laughs> so much experience at this that um, what I have to say probably pales in comparison. But I'm thinking of the first few sentences of, say, an introduction in a research article. I mean, that that is a key moment in the research, isn't it? If you're talking, say, of a narrative, that is the once upon a time, isn't it? This is yeah. the moment when you're either going to have your reader enter into your article and care about your story, or you're going to have a reader quickly shut it up and look for something else. Exactly. I mean, it's a bit like when, you know, journalists interact with press releases, right? A press release needs to be very to the point very, very early on, because otherwise the journalist is not going to pick that up and and they're not going to write about the story. So it's the same thing. Uh, You just need to understand that the you know the the hero is not the research itself and he's not even you having performed the research the hero is the reader and if you don't put the reader at the center of your mind you are not making yourself a service because no one's going to read your your work whether that's a poster or, or a paper or whatever that is so i've seen i remember um you know when when i was uh, just when i started my my editorial career and I, I obviously i started to become more aware of these things I remember uh, attending a conference where one of my uh, friends from my former lab uh, gave a presentation and the conference was very broad, but she started the the slides with a super duper technical uh, slide full of equations that I think, you know, 90% of the room uh, couldn't follow without, you know, without an introduction of 
why what am I gonna tell you is important to you? She went straight into the science because that's what science scientists do. They love their science and they um, and they think that's enough, but actually it's not because unless you're talking to yourself um, and therefore you know how much the 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 audience know about um, the topic, then you can't assume uh, and you need to you need to understand who your average audience is to be able to take them with you. This brings us back, if if you follow, uh, to this idea of the nature and the research. Uh, uh, to, excuse me, <laughs> to the research and the communication. Um, the idea that, as you were just saying, of course, scientists, primary researchers, are passionate about what they're doing. I mean, they're so involved in it, and the key, the trick, isn't it? Especially when a submission is coming in uh, to you, I would imagine, is that they translate that into what they've written. Because it's only what they've written that you're able to see, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's true. So I, I think, um, again, maybe related to what you're saying is that sometimes people think that because they've done so much, you know, they've done all of these experiments, they're now going to tell you about all of them. <laughs> and and that's not always, uh, you know, needed because it detracts from the main points of the story so i think and i'm not saying to cherry pick your data obviously you have to if you if you have data that shows um uh you know something that is against your main conclusion you obviously have to show that but i'm just saying that the you know there is a distinction between what you have done and what you want to say that the two are not necessarily the same because you will have done plenty of experiments or or you know whatever uh, theoretical researchers do in terms of maybe writing code and stuff that I'm not saying is irrelevant to the main story, but but just doesn't add as much message to it. So again, they you know researchers have to understand the difference between this is all the body of research I have produced and this is the one that I actually need to tell my story. And I repeat, just to be to be clear, I'm not suggesting people cherry pick their data. I'm just saying they should uh, fit. Um, the data that they have into a story without go, going overboard because they just make a disservice to, to themselves. You know, no one's going to read a paper that's 130 pages long. Right, right. And I don't think any serious scientist is going to misunderstand in the sense of that they change the figures. I mean, <laughs> definitely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, think, no. I think that's... <laughs> Well, okay, yes. I mean, you have you have far more experience than that than I do. That's for sure. Um, yes, I, I I love this point that you say that, that you uh, what you have done is one thing, and what you want to say is another. And that brings me um, a little bit more concretely to some of your workday uh, activities. Let's say when a submission lands on your desk, or better said, probably you call it up on your screen. What is it that you? pleases you to see there? What makes also your work easier? What is it when you see that somebody has uh, said what they want to say and not just have said what they've done? Yeah, I mean, I guess what makes the job easier for an editor is to receive a paper that is well written and well constructed. And and as we were saying, the, the authors are perhaps so experienced that they know how to pitch their story so that it's a it's nice because obviously it, it gets the pain from the editor to unpick what's being said. Uh, you know, that there are papers where I'm not saying they're badly written, but they are so dense because they, it's not a story, it's a dump of facts that you have to start unpicking the facts until you make your own version of the story that they're trying to say. And then you assess that story based on your criteria. So so I think what, uh, what we are pleased with is when 
somebody comes in and in the paper it is clear what they have done it is clear uh, how that is an advance over the previous literature and therefore the previous literature is is well cited is comprehensively cited uh, there are no you know no um, uh, gaps there and then they tell you why it's important so people that have this kind of um, good structure in in the in the story it's a joy because if they if the paper doesn't have that itself you have to unpick it you know as an editor for yourself if that makes sense it does it makes a lot of sense and so you want people who can unpick themselves if if i might yeah, use your word exactly <laughs> that demands of course a lot of say rhetorical skill in a sense. I mean, rhetoric always generally comes down to knowing your audience. So it would seem to me that then when making a submission to Nature Communications, you would want to know also then who is going to most likely want to read your submission or who generally is inside reading Nature Communications. Is that, uh, could, could you give a picture of that in a sense? Of their readership? Of the readership, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah sure. I mean, uh, Nature Communications, it, it's a bit of a special beast, I think, uh, certainly amongst the, the Nature Research portfolio because we, ha- we are as broad in scope as Nature, the flagship journal, uh, compared to any other nature-branded journals, which are very kind of discipline-specific, as I mentioned earlier. You know, we have Nature Physics, Nature Energy, Nature Medicine, those those. Um, Publications will, of course, be read by a narrower uh, f- section of the of the research uh, population, uh, but we are read as widely as as Nature is because we publish on all of the natural and and more recently social sciences. Uh, this said, we also so we so in that sense we appeal to research that is also multidisciplinary because um, it's you can't put it in research that you can't put in a bucket uh, that is discipline specific finds a very uh, suitable home with us. But also, despite that, or in addition to that, so to speak, we target specific communities too. So the advance, the type of advances that we publish will not be perhaps your super high impact result, which would go in the flagship nature. Um, and that might have implications for you know, an entire subset of, of science. Uh, so we publish also work that is is very relevant for a for a niche area, but still it's equally important. So on we have both. We have the, the breadth of, of the multidisciplinarity of our content, but also the fact that we appeal to specific communities. And and just to go back to what you said in the in the introduction, uh, so we kind of sit a little bit at the interface, so to speak, between the uh, family of our sister journals, which are nature branded, and like them, uh, we have in-house uh, professional editors. And then, um, you know, beyond that, we have this new portfolio of journals: communications, physics, communications biology, and and we're launching a few more as well. Uh, and then scientific reports, which is our sound science journal. So we we kind of fit in that um, kind of cascade of of journals in a way that uh, attracts not only multidisciplinary science, but also um, advances that are specific to a, a, a small discipline or a, or a niche discipline. Uh, but at the same time, of course, we look for, you know, if we get if we get advances which impact a very broad amount of, um, of uh, sub-disciplines, of course, we're going to publish that, but th- those things tend to go perhaps to, to our um, sister journals more than they come to us. 
Okay, yeah. Um, if I could come back just uh, for one more question there on the submissions, and, and in particular, I'm thinking of, let's say, the abstract or or the first lines of an introduction. Would you say if somebody had a niche uh, discovery, a, a niche novel finding, something that was uh, going, according to your description, very likely to end up in, in nature communications, would it be your advice that they also look still to begin their story maybe one or two pages early? In other words, to try to set a context that could already lead slightly outside of that niche, maybe beginning with literature that doesn't immediately impact right on what uh, their findings were in that particular study. Would that make sense? Or would you say they should just simply just concentrate on um, the focus that they have already? Uh, well, I think it will depend on a case by case basis. But what what you know what I think one one should always put the advance into context. Whether it's in a niche area or in a broader area, you should be able to tell how does what you've done relate to what was already there, and then to the extent uh, to which you then speculate on further implications. I think you have to be careful there because you don't want to oversell or you don't want to make a story where there isn't one. So I would say within the boundaries of remaining true to the facts and true to what you've actually uh, done that might impact uh, you know, the world more broadly, yeah, you should definitely give the context, but, but also make sure that you don't hype or oversell by uh, you know, adding wild speculations on, on how these results might impact other things uh, without having evidence in the actual paper. Editors are obviously there for a very good reason. Um, You've given us all kinds of uh, reasons why. And one would clearly be to find perhaps that best context, because as you said, of their broad knowledge and their wide reading. And yet I have to come back to the researchers again. I think it certainly can't be bad advice to researchers to be reading as broadly as they possibly can. Of course, within limitations because of their primary work, but um, to tell a researcher, read a lot, can't be a bad idea, is it? Definitely not. I mean, they, the more they read beyond their immediate fields, the more of these uh, collaborations perhaps that wouldn't have occurred otherwise will become available to them and, and possible. So definitely... Uh, you know, the advice to read as broadly as, as you can, it's a very good one. But, you know, in practice, it's just not possible for researchers to even keep up with all of the um, literature published in their own area because it's probably, you know, hundreds or thousands of papers a year. So in practice, I think that's why uh, journals such as mine and such as the other nature titles also add value to the readership is to do that selection of content for on behalf of the researchers. So, so the fact that we are selective titles that we, um, you know, screen out so such a large fraction of our submissions at the beginning, there's a reason for that. The reason is that we curate what what gets published in terms of um, kind of trying to find to find uh, the the most impactful works that will be of interest to the most people so that you as a researcher don't have to wade through, uh, you know, hundreds or thousands of papers every year, but you can read those two or three journals that are your reference and they will be your guide into telling you what's happening in that field, obviously uh, pointing you to other uh, journals as well. But um, that's, I think, why the curation that we provide can be such a good um tool for for researchers which otherwise don't have sufficient time to go and read so broadly themselves. 
Yeah, and, and and this idea of curation brings me right into one of the major components of it, I would say, is the mediating role that uh, editors tend to play between the reviewers and then the authors. Um, could you give us maybe a broad picture of how the peer review process uh, tends to run at uh, Nature Communications? Maybe even if you took a generic submission and told us sort of, yeah, with a basic timeline and uh, stages in the process, mm-hmm. uh, how an author could expect it to go for them? Yeah, sure. So normally, let's say we receive a, a submission on, on day one, and the first thing that happens to that submission is that our editorial assistant uh, team, within it's an administrative type of team, they will perform some quality checks to ensure that we have the information that we need to send the paper to review if if that's the case. So, you know, basic policy information is to be there, things like, you know, um, who has contributed to this uh, to this work, um, you know, very basic things. So once they do that, those checks and, and the paper passes those, those checks, then typically the paper is assigned um, in relation to the expertise that is needed for that work to one of our, as I was saying, 100 plus editors. Um, and they will if do, I if yeah. I might just ju- if I might sorry I I hate to break the narrative but I, I just want to jump in there because there is something that came to my attention while doing some research on the uh, on Nature Communications a few editors spoke of um, reproducibility checklists uh, would that be something that occurs at that stage or is this something further down the line Yeah exactly that's one of the things that we would look for so typically we um, wouldn't send the paper to reviewers unless certain uh, specific information is available so uh, as a concrete example if it's if it's a paper reporting uh, clinical trials we want to know that the clinical trial was was registered and was approved by the appropriate bodies we're not going to send out a paper to reviewers without having that um, kind of safeguard in place and likewise for other reproducibility uh, initiatives we by the time we send the papers to review we want to have certain information in place from the authors in relation to their methodology where they took the data from um and and the likes you know what patient consent if if it's relevant so all of these things will happen at some point before the paper is sent to review so that definitely reproducibility is an area of, of great importance for us um and and we pay a lot of attention to that Okay, yeah. And uh, then you were taking the paper along a bit further for us before I jumped in and interrupted there. (laughs) Sure. Uh, So we were left with uh, one of our editors being assigned the paper. So what they typically do, they assess the paper by reading it in full. They read the relevant literature if if they need to, depending on how familiar they are with the area already. And, you know, they will just just do even with a Google search, you know, Googling around, see what, what's been done here, uh, going to other papers, uh, assessing that. They will make some notes for themselves on what they have got from the paper. Um, they might typically, we, we call it circulate the paper to another editor, which means getting input from someone else within the team, particularly if the paper is very uh, multidisciplinary and requires the expertise of more than one editor to, to make an assessment. That will happen. And then the editor will decide whether they are going to send the papers to review or not, um, based on uh, you know their perception of the of the significance of the advance reported. Um, and, and so at the, up to this point, there's not really a technical assessment of the paper because we leave that to reviewers. As I was saying, you know we have a very broad knowledge, but also very shallow. So we we can't make technical calls unless technical call is so obvious that that you can make it with your you know with kind of high school (laughs) 
or uh, the, the um, how do you say um, undergrad level uh, scientific knowledge, right? So, um, so then the paper will go to reviewers. Uh, the choice of reviewers it's really really important because you have to ensure that you get the right people to review the paper in terms of both expertise and knowledge, but also in terms of the lack of any competing interest. So we, you know, that's the step where you have to be the most careful. And this first phase where you decide to send something to review or not typically lasts about a week, or that, that's our target at least. And then, um, as I was saying, the editor will assign reviewers, um, and typically we give them two weeks to, to return a report. Uh, but, you know, by the time you've found the reviewers, a lot of them might drop out or they might not reply uh, because of this from submission to when um, authors receive a first um, decision post-review with all the reviewer reports takes about 45 days. Um, and then from there, a number of things can happen if the paper was found to be of sufficient interest and it's found to be technically solid or, or you know, can, can be technically solid if, if they fix certain things, we might invite a revision. If we uh, can't see a way towards publication, then we might decline publication and return the paper to the authors. Uh, and then once the paper is back with the authors, if they were invited to review to revise, they will send us um, a revision and the process goes like that for normally twice, you know, two, two or three times until we finally accept the paper for publication. And there's a number of, you know, formatting checks that happen at that point. And then the paper is, is um, exported uh, to our production team. And then we kind of lose track of it as in it's not in editorial remit anymore until it's published. I see. Uh, this. There's this wonderful book uh, written by a, a Stainton called the, um, the Fine Art of Copy Editing. Now, I'm fully aware that you're doing far more than just copy editing. But the interesting thing is, is that bo this book spends a large amount of time managing people, man about managing people, about managing personalities, about dealing with conflict and so on. Not, not the kind of thing you would necessarily to be, <laughs> expect to be sort of the focus of a book on editing. And yet, uh, the the process that you've just described for me uh, seems to open up many opportunities for the reviewers to be thinking one thing, the authors another thing, the editors to be mediating in the middle with their own opinions or with their own interests in the journal for what the journal wants actually to have as its strategic position. Um, could you perhaps say a few words about uh, what it's like dealing with all these different people? Yeah, sure. Well, I think that's that's where it becomes interesting, right? You know, people are always the most interesting part of, of any job, I think. Um, and yeah, as, as you were saying, exactly, our role um, at the point of interface with, between authors and reviewers is to find a way forward, right? Uh, there will be reviewers perhaps disagreeing with, with themselves, with, with each other, um, authors disagreeing with the reviewers, and, and the role of the editor is to see past that and to come up with a... With a final, you know, with a conclusion of, of the of the process that takes into account, obviously, what's really critical and factual from the reviewers, but perhaps also puts into context more kind of, um, you know, requests from reviewers that might go beyond the scope of the work. So that is a call that the editors might have to do, uh, you know, very often in terms of, yeah, you're asking this, this is really needed to make sure the work is solid. Oh, you're also asking that, and that is a bit, you know, 
it's an overkill. I can't ask these authors to spend another two years on an unrelated part of the project to, to complete this paper. So I think that's why the, the editor needs to sit and needs to kind of mediate between the requests from the reviewers, which uh, who, might, by the way, might have, you know, they might have very different expertises um, compared to each other. So maybe one reviewer might comment on something that is not their main area of expertise and therefore that comment might not be that correct after all. So we might ask other reviewers with a more relevant expertise on that on that topic to comment on what this reviewer has said. So this is all uh, the work that the editor needs to do. And also very importantly, as you were saying, we're dealing with people here. I mean, this is, it's not science, this is people. Uh, people make science. Uh, and inevitably there will be, you know, dynamics in communities that you need to be aware of whether, you know, some researchers are competing with each other or very friendly with each other. You know, you have to know these things because when you assign reviewers, you need to have that kind of um, overview uh, and, and that will be of help when you put the reports into context. You know, if you receive a very, very positive report um, from somebody you know, it's a, a potential, I'm not saying potential collaborator, but you know, you have, you have to put what people say into context of how they perceive the authors as well. Um, and I think we were discussing this before we actually start, uh, start the interview, but that, that's one of the reasons why things like double-blind peer review might actually be, be of help there because some of that bias that the editor needs to be aware of and mediate could be removed by a different type of peer review model. And that brings us to some of, uh, as as you mentioned, right, some of these studies, uh, your own included, on the double-blind uh, peer review, or also some of the other uh, initiatives that uh, Nature Communications uh, uses, such as transparent peer review or reviewer recognition, even um, in outreach events, uh, answering academics' questions, so the researchers themselves on uh, what it is in submissions that counts, who might be, not who might be potentially reviewing, but how the review process works. Do you see all of these different aspects uh, contributing to a, a, a smoother and better communication of science? I think that they do in the long term. So I think we, we come from a place where science communication, as we know it in the forms of you know journals and, and the likes, it, it, it was, from the start, a very closed enterprise, right? You would, at the beginning, there wasn't even peer review. Peer review is a very, very recent uh, introduction, right? Before it was people submitting their work to um, the editor and the editor publishing that work if they thought it was of interest. But there wasn't really much scrutiny on the on the process at all. And even when peer review was, was introduced, uh, the the um, you know the common single blind peer review that that we know, it, from the point of view of anyone else that is not the editor, it's really a bit of a black box because you know first of all you don't know what doesn't get published right you only see what gets published as a reader but also even even then you don't know who kind of approved of that work in in terms of um, who were the reviewers what did they think about the work how the work has changed from the first submissions. Uh, you only see the final product, um, and that's and that's not good for basically anyone. So over the years, we know all these movements um, towards more greater transparency and accountability that we've seen uh, at various publishers. I think those are really really great, and and Nature Communications is is proud to support many of those initiatives. I think the most important one at the moment that we do is um, 
is the transparent peer review where we publish the, the review reports because that starts opening up the box a bit and you can see at least uh, what people thought of the work while it was being reviewed. And if people want to sign the report, you know, I'm all in favor for that. We also allow people to, as you were saying, to be recognized as reviewers uh, just with their name. Uh, and I hope that, so this was the first step when we introduced this initiative, but I really hope that in the future we can move to an um, even stronger position where, first of all, we, um, you know, mandate transparent peer review at the moment is, is an option for authors, but we don't mandate it. And secondly, that if you do review for us uh, and the report is published, that you also sign it, but we, um, you know, we wouldn't sort of decouple signing, uh, having your name on the paper as a reviewer with uh, being the author of a report. So I think all of these initiatives, we have to take them in steps because changing the mentality of the community is very, very difficult uh, and it takes time and you, it can't be something that we as publishers impose on the community. It needs to come from the community to, to be truly successful. So we are doing baby steps and I think we're going in the right direction and it might take a bit longer until all of this becomes you know, common practice. From my view outside, I would, uh, I would see what you mean when you say that the transparent peer review is certainly one of those most impactful of uh, measures so far. Uh, it would also seem to me uh, to be a wonderful insight for authors wanting to submit to see as we were talking earlier, if you want to be rhetorical, well, you have to know your readers. Well, there are some readers, aren't there? I mean, it's actual fact as to how some readers have read, isn't it? I mean, this going through the transparent, going through the peer review process of of articles that might be in similar areas to yours, I think would be for most authors a wonderful preparation for how to cast their research, wouldn't it? Yeah, that is absolutely true, and not only that, but also for you know, for newer reviewers, you know, when, when you've never reviewed before, you don't really know what to do. And if you, basically you can learn from past reviews because you can just see how people structure their comments, you know, what tone are they using? So we've, we've heard from uh, several people saying that as a resource for, for new reviewers, having the reports published is actually very useful. Well, that's also good. Yes, definitely. I mean, because the review system and the review network is just as much a part of this as everything else, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a key um, part. It it is. Yes, it does. It does very much sound that way. I would I would like to hone in on um, a particular interest of mine, and and that is. Um, sentences and editing. <laughs> We've talked a lot about editing and you've made uh, very clear, uh, very important points on the entire process. But if we might just call to mind f for a moment, uh, sentence level issues. Uh, if you think of what might be your standard of right of what goes and what doesn't go, what what works better and what doesn't work better. If if I might presume, what 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 is the sort of combination between the thought that's in the sentence, the style of the sentence, and the communication that the sentence achieves that that would be for you right that you could say uh, that that sort of suits my editing practice or or might characterize let's say even the entire journal. If if yeah. I can make a complicated question simple, <laughs> yeah. I will try. Um, what makes a good sentence for you? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I shall say that in terms of copy editing, we uh, we focus on specific areas of the paper, namely the title and the abstract and the introduction is where we would give the most impact because input because um, 
you know, the rest, uh, those are the, 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 the areas which are, will be more widely read than the rest, right? Because non-specialists might still read the title of the abstract, perhaps they're not going to read the methods. So in terms of that, I think a sentence, you know, the, the language needs to be, needs to be factual, uh, without hypes, uh, without puns. I know we, we have sometimes papers that are written almost in a journalistic way, but you know, that that's, that's not appropriate in my view, because this is not uh, a newspaper. <laughs> this is a scientific uh, paper we're talking about. So they have to be, uh, as we as I said, factual, concise, uh, not misleading. Um, and again, the way people construct phrases sometimes might mask, um, I'm not saying misconduct, but you know, sometimes the way you refer to previous work might make it sound like your work is now very different when in fact it, it is not. You've just phrased it in a way when you refer to that particular reference that make it sound like your work is a lot better or a lot different. So again, being truth to whatever the work is and has done, being concise, being uh, factual uh, and generally as plain as possible, I think uh, it's important. And particularly the last thing, you know, it's it's not when I think when when researchers write papers for wide dissemination, they should think that they're not going to help their readers if they don't use um, basically if you don't use simple language, you're not going to help yourself by making your your research widely uh, impactful because if the readers are confused, you know, many a large fraction of researchers out there won't be researchers whose first language is English, right? So you have to be mindful of that and you have to be, um, and you have to choose um, the simplest word and the simplest construct (laughs) you can, because if you don't, you undermine your own aim. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Uh, and uh, what I what I like is, as you stated earlier, the editors are going to be looking into the references and the citations that you give. So it's very easy to show up someone who's not being quite accurate or not giving the right path to their research because uh, they've laid out the citations and they're not the right ones. So citing citing accurately matters, obviously, very very much. What you say also about plain language, I find uh, quite interesting. Science prose is known for being very heavy in nouns. It's known for having noun one, of, noun two, of, noun three, of, and then somewhere in there, there's a verb. Uh, I'm sure you've seen a million papers of that sort, a, a trillion sentences of that sort. And of course, if you know the jargon and if you're in with uh, whatever the research is you can follow along but doesn't it get easier if you drop a verb every so often and maybe reduce the length of some of your noun phrases yeah i mean as i was saying i think being concise and using very simple uh, sentence structures where there is you know a subject a verb and, a, and, a, and an object and that's it greatly helps because anything more elaborate why you know why it might be seen as a you know a more sophisticated type of language is just gonna not help you in making sure everybody can understand what you're saying and you know interestingly enough we we face the same problem uh, in our own decision letters to authors because we in the past you know the when uh, when nature first launched and and there weren't that many other journals around you know we used to write in a very British English way, and I don't know how familiar you are with with British people, but it's very difficult to know what they actually are saying. (laughs) 
they are really masters of uh, of saying things in a way that it's you have to read between the lines and this is how our this is how our letters used to look like uh, and if you're not familiar with british culture i mean good luck with that so i think we more recently we are really trying to make an effort to rewrite our letters to make it very to make it very clear and and um, and simple you know to the authors this is what we are saying about your paper. We are inviting a revision or we are not inviting a revision for this and that reason. So try to really bring the language as plain as we can because we were guilty of the same thing that we were accusing researchers of, right? Well, I being American, I'm sure you've heard the quote before that the Americans and the British are divided by a common language. Um, I, I could very much sympathize with this idea that sometimes you cannot be entirely sure what it is that they mean. <laughs> um, and, and I very much appreciate that 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 policy of, say, a plain English policy. Um, you're right. I mean, we're doing work here. Uh, the the commun- I think we've established the communication is at least just as important as the research. So why bog it down with language and sentences that aren't serving purpose, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, you, you brought up the point of uh, people who have uh, English as an additional language or multilingual uh, users. Uh, do you have any particular advice to them? Because uh, it's not just, of course, as you say, readers who um, are coming from different cultures, different backgrounds and different languages, and they're well served by plain language. Uh, but it's very many authors and very many researchers who are having to adopt English for their purpose of research. And uh, writing research has shown that they're just simply in a different position to a native speaker. Um is there anything that you would uh, perhaps recommend uh, to such authors and submitters? Yeah, I mean, the thing that we always say is to, if somebody is really inexperienced with writing in English, to always maybe ask for, for help with some, you know, from some colleagues or other people around them which are more familiar with the English language and perhaps they can review their draft or otherwise try to sort of clarify the message if, if the message is not too clear. Um, so, so that is something that we tell everybody. Of course, the extreme of that is that there are paid-for services that will help you, uh, you know, improve the English of the paper, but I'm not suggesting that, um, you know, basically for, at the point of a first submission, as long as we can read and and understand what the authors have done, we will never reject the paper because the language is bad. You know, as long as we think we understand, reviewers will understand, we can deal with the language at a later stage. So I don't think, you know, the professional editing language uh, aspect, because it's expensive, is not something that I would recommend people look at at the very beginning. Uh, but then other things, again, people learn by imitation, which means... People have to read. You know, if you're not familiar with the language, well, then you have to read a lot, and maybe read in, um, you know, in, a, in maybe the, the top publications that you follow. Those maybe three or four or five, and read a lot of those papers because by by doing so, you quickly understand what are the, um, you know, what are the how do you say, the tactics or the or the strategies that the authors have used to make their work um, impactful and, and accessible. So. Again, you, you can learn, oh, the person has presented things in this way, I might do the same, of course, adapting it to my own situation. So reading always helps to, um, to improve one's um, skill set. And clearly, any researcher uh, who is a multilingual user, 
it's it's not a long term solution, is it, to rely on others? You, you're going to, at some point to want to gain your own autonomy. I mean, it is your research. Don't you want to put your ideas out there in your own words? Because then you're always going to hit it best, aren't you? So this learning process that you're talking about, or through other methods, whatever they may be, that are most effective, um, perhaps visiting a, a, a writing center or a writing program at university, <laughs> whatever they happen to be. Uh, that is the truer path forward, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you agree on that? Yeah, I mean that. That's without saying, of course. You know, one has to consider um, that as an ongoing skill to to master in terms of how to communicate science. So, so it can be a kind of a this short term fix can't can't work for the long term. But I also know that depending on on where you are in the world, you know, such courses might not be provided by the university or might be more uh, inaccessible so my point is you know people will have to do what they can and what's available to them in wherever they are but yeah if you're if you're kind of uh, serious about science communication in the longer term of course you have to build um, an autonomous uh, skill set in, in writing and and messaging that that you know you just usually need to have for yourself you can't constantly rely on others to um to basically tell the story for you. Well, uh, Lisa, thank you very much. You've been very generous with your time, but I, I would like to uh, give you one last question. And uh, that is, what would you say would be a particularly successful work week or just even work day uh, for you? That's a great question. <laughs> um, I think that the work days that I tend to enjoy the most is where I have perhaps close interactions uh, with the rest of my team. As I was saying, it's a very large team of 100 people and I interact with subsets of them in internal working groups and the likes. So when maybe we work on a project together for the journal, uh, we currently are doing a, a mentoring scheme for early career researchers and peer review. So things like that really are a highlight for me because they, you know, that's where I get to interact with my team the most. Um, and more generally, a successful week is when there's no firefighting to do, which it's it's a very rare week. <laughs> so normally there will be something that has gone wrong somewhere in the journal because we are so large. Uh, as I mentioned today, we are dealing with uh, some uh, backlash on Twitter on a paper. So those are the weeks that are, you know I struggle the most with. But um, thankfully, they're not always like that. There's a lot of, uh, of positives as well. Well, I wish you less journal fires, and <laughs> I thank you very much for your time. That is Elisa de Ranieri, Editor-in-Chief of Nature Communications. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Elisa. Goodbye. Goodbye, and thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Daniel, and, and bye, everyone. And this is also goodbye from me to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication. <laughs>